Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Hello, everybody. It's Rick Wagner here, getting it right on KNZZ, KGLN, and the Internet. And we appreciate your listenership, and especially those that are pulling up the podcast here. We do appreciate that, too. Well, I'm sure you're tuning in for the latest news. And, of course, uh, we do have the latest news. Taylor Swift was uh, seen out, uh, I think, last night walking. Yes, walking on her own two legs. That's correct. Uh, hard to imagine. And if there's any more updates on that, I will be sure and get it to you uh, as they come in. So, but in, in news that's not nearly as important as what's going on with uh, Taylor Swift, I thought we'd take a little look at what's going on down in Texas. It's a very interesting situation down there. And what makes it interesting is that the governor is going in one direction, protecting his state, protecting his citizens. And, to some extent, large extent maybe, protecting the United States. The United States government, in terms of the federal government, is doing just the opposite. It's harming Texas, and it's harming the United States. And it's not fulfilling its duty. Well, I should say it's not. Joe Biden and his appointees aren't. I suppose uh, Mayorkas would be first in line there, but do we really think that he does anything without being told? Now... He's probably a miserable boss, but he's at least staying in line. We'll give him that. Now, some of you know that Texas has refused to move off the border and let Border Patrol agents come in and cut the wire and take over stuff and like that. First of all, did you ever think that you would come to a day where the Border Patrol is in fact facilitating, not because they want to, but because they've been ordered to, illegal immigration. And are supposed to be taking the place of state law enforcement because they're essentially trying to do the job that is, in fact, the job description of the Border Patrol. If it doesn't make your head spin a little bit, you just ain't paying attention. So what has happened here is that in order to get around this, it's entirely possible that Joe Biden or whoever is, you know, speaking in his behalf while he's in his test tube receiving electrical impulses that let him function for another 30 or 40 minutes a day, nationalize the Texas National Guard. And they can do that. The power to do that lies within the Constitution. Each state may have its militia, National Guard, to utilize at times of stress or insurrection. It's one of the things that the founders thought about uh, within their state. But also, the executive branch, president, can call upon those folks in the National Guard to do the bidding of the United States because they are part of United States military when he decides that they are. 
Now, this has happened before in terms of struggle between a state and the federal government. Some of you remember them. I think the first time probably would have been, you know, the, in modern times. And I think about 1957, maybe, with Eisenhower trying to get the Civil Rights Act. Well, of course, the Civil Rights Act hadn't been passed yet, but trying to work on dismantling segregation. And then, of course, we come to the other time, many of you remember, in the 60s, where JFK and RFK, his brother, who was the Attorney General at the time, National Guard, to help escort black students into school in Mississippi. You may also remember that George Wallace, who I might point out was a Democrat, and also ran for president as a Democrat, but anyway, was standing in the door of the school to bar it from people, to not let any African Americans in. Now, that was really the last time where there's been a conflict between a state's own National Guard and its own executive branch or police officers, or whatever the case you want to say, because remember, if police officers and the Texas Rangers and the Department of Public Safety in Texas are, in fact, a police-type state officer whose authority flows from their governor. So it's an interesting collision there, right? What we see here is what we see here is Abbott, who has, is looking at a section of the Constitution. And some of you asked me about it because you'd heard a little bit about it. It's Article One, Section Ten, Clause Three. All right. It says, "No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state." or with a foreign power, or engage in war, unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit delay. The courts have interpreted this several different ways, but essentially what they're trying to say is no matter what happens, the federal government can control the National Guard. What Abbott is saying is that I have to use the resources at my disposal. And he's not using the National Guard at this point. He's using the Texas Department of Public Safety, which, by the way, includes the Texas Rangers, to try and stop what he brands as an invasion. Now, he's written a letter, came out the 24th of January, which I think is an important document. Let's just hope it doesn't become a very important document if something happens. I'm going to read you parts of it because it's worth knowing, and you've probably heard it referenced on the news. But here we have it. He says, I'm quoting here, The federal government has broken the compact between the United States and the states. The contract, in other words, compact, contract, are kind of interchangeable there. The executive branch of the United States has a constitutional duty to enforce federal laws protecting states, including immigration laws, which are on the books right now. President Biden has refused to enforce those laws and has even violated them. The result is that he has a smashed record for legal immigration. Then he lays out some things where President Biden has violated his oath to faithfully execute immigration laws enacted by Congress. 
Instead of prosecuting immigrants for the federal crime of illegal entry, President Biden has sent his lawyers into federal courts to sue Texas for taking action to secure the border. Next, President Biden has instructed his agencies to ignore federal statutes and mandate the detention of illegal immigrants. The effect is to illegally allow their en masse parole into the United States. By wasting taxpayer dollars to tear open Texas border security infrastructure, that would be taking down the barbed wire, I'm thinking, or it's really razor wire, President Biden has enticed illegal immigrants away from the 28 legal entry points along the state's southern border, bridges where nobody drowns, and into the dangerous waters of the Rio Grande. We've seen some of the really bad situations there. He refers to Biden's lawless border policies and how it's the the law the uh, border has just become a complete disaster. And then he gets into, I think the the really interesting part of it. He says James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and the other visionaries who wrote the U.S. Constitution foresaw that states should not be left to the mercy of a lawless president who does nothing to stop external threats like cartels, smuggling of illegal immigrants across the border. This is why the framers included Article 4, Section 4, which promises the federal government shall protect each state against invasion. And Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which acknowledges the state's sovereign interest in protecting their borders. And then he cites the case of Arizona versus United States from 2012. So what he is saying is that the state is reserved the right of self-defense, and that's what he's invoking here. Very interesting document, very interesting position. We'll be back. All right, folks, thanks for sticking around into this uh, next segment here. I hope I wasn't too uh, hopping around when I was reading the letter from Abbott and some of these other things. I printed this out, and I did not think to enlarge it, so I printed it out really small. And so I had to sort of focus to try and read it there, so I'm sure it sounded a little bit hackneyed. But I think you get the drift. What you have here is a governor of a state that's just about, I don't know, three-quarters the size of Western Europe that is being overrun. And he has interpreted overrun to be an invasion which outside of an armed invasion, and now we're starting to see armed cartel members and so forth come into the country, exchange gunfire across our border with our our Border Patrol people and as well as Department of Public Safety in Texas. He's decided that's an invasion. And that under Article 3, or rather Article 1, I got to get this, I got to get this right here. What he cites, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, which I just read like three times, you think I remember it, that he is empowered to enact because he cannot wait for the federal government to act, and his state is essentially under siege. What the Dems want President Biden, or whoever's working in his stead there, to do is to nationalize the Texas National Guard, in other words, take federal authority over them and order them to do something. Like what? This isn't like the civil rights situations we were discussing in the first segment, where really the, what they did is went and lined up guardsmen, at least in a couple of these situations, and provided a pathway for the 
young people, young African Americans, to be able to get into the school and not let anybody interfere with it. That's, you know, a confrontation to some extent between federal power and state power. But it was, it was controlled and narrow. What they may be asking the National Guard of Texas to do is unclear. Are they supposed to go in as a federalized National Guard and remove the Texas Rangers and the Department of Public Safety from some of these areas? I don't know. I don't know exactly what you'd use them for if you nationalized them. Are they just supposed to go in and start tearing up the uh, razor wire and all that stuff and Department of Public Safety just supposed to stand by? Maybe it will. I don't know. But remember what's fascinating about this is that both sides of that are Texans. And they many times are going to be people who are in the National Guard that are probably in law enforcement on a regular basis and are National Guardsmen on a part-time basis. I don't know what happens here. What if the National Guard or parts of the National Guard refuse to obey the orders of the executive in Washington? I don't know what happens there either. What we're seeing is a really pivotal time and development in American constitutional, shall we say, adherence. In other words, can the Constitution continue to hold states together if you have this big of a divide between interpretations? Now, Biden's not interpreting it that you know he can do it he wants. He's just doing it. We haven't heard any interpretation to say, oh, I don't have to I ignore the law. He's just ignoring the law. Abbott is pointing out he's ignoring the law. He is, in fact, facilitating lawbreakers, which, by the way, I would think that would be an impeachable offense. I'm pretty sure it is, actually. And he has created a situation where the state of Texas has to act on its behalf because there is, in fact, an invasion and the danger is imminent, and the federal government is not helping. It's, oddly enough, facilitating the invasion. It's a crazy thing. We've sort of been introduced to it slowly, so that we're kind of, you know, not as surprised and shocked at the development, because it's kind of been an ongoing thing. But if you stop and just freeze it in time a minute, and look at what's going on and think about it. This is a this is a very dodgy time in American jurisprudence. A test of the Constitution of executive power. There's all sorts of things tied up in this, isn't there? And I don't think I or really anybody else knows exactly what will happen. The Supreme Court says that. The razor wire can be taken down. That the state of Texas doesn't have any right to maintain it. If the feds want to take it down from the border, they can. I know many people were disappointed with the ever wisp of the wind John Roberts on the Supreme Court taking the side of the administration. And Amy Comey Bryant, who, or Barrett rather, 
I, I can't figure out where she go, comes down on the issues. I just don't. Some of them I can, but she did the same thing. I can say that I understand the reasoning simply because there is a long line of cases out there that say the Constitution makes it very clear that the border and defense of the border is the responsibility of the federal government. And you can't just go changing it, say Arizona can't have one way to admit people, and Texas another, and New Mexico this. You know, they can't do that. And it makes sense that the Constitution would control it that way, because you need one law when it comes to the border of the country. The thing is, by the nature of that, the federal government needs to actually enforce its border. And it's not doing that. For all intents and purposes, there is no border down there in some of these places. You you can see Eagle Pass, Texas. I mean, it's it's just a throughway. Might as well put a highway through there for people coming in from across the Mexican border and not necessarily people from Mexico or even Central America or South America. There's a lot of people coming in from Africa and Central Europe and Dominican Republic. I mean, why would you possibly go through immigration someplace where you can just wander in? And if you look at what the cities are doing for these folks, like Chicago, New York, and stuff, bankrupting themselves rather than finally admit that they're not really sanctuary cities because they don't have any way to be a sanctuary city. It's just a lot of fluff, and it's just a lot of way for them to talk and virtue signal. When it comes right down to it, they don't want to do it, and they don't have the wherewithal to do it. So we see that there is a clear abrogation of constitutional mandates on the part of the executive. So what Abbott is saying, that's made it clear they're not going to assist. We have what I've declared an invasion and an insurrection. I think he even says that in here. Let me see. Uh, let's see. I've already declared an invasion under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, to invoke Texas' constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. The authority is a supreme law of the land and supersedes any federal statutes to the contrary. The Texas National Guard, the Texas Department of Public Safety, and other Texas personnel are acting on that authority, as well as state law, to secure the Texas border. Now, if you start really listening to that, He's saying they're acting under the authority of the Constitution as well as state authority. So is what he's saying that a nationalized, and I'm projecting here, a nationalized National Guard would refuse orders from an executive on the basis that they are unconstitutional. That's sort of where you'd go. We're ordering you to open the border and do things that are adverse to the purposes set out in the Constitution and are directly adverse to the duties of the president. So does that justify taking a different position by the National Guard? And we don't know. But it's very interesting the way Abbott puts that. He's saying that they exist in what they're doing, not just under state authority, but under their interpretation of the Constitution. 
So we're seeing two different interpretations of the Constitution. And we've seen that before. Most notably, in 1860, where the southern states interpret the Constitution to say they could secede if they wanted to. And the North saying, no, we don't think so, not so fast. Those are two interpretations. Now, that's an extreme example. But there's some language in there from Abbott in there that he is definitely trying, in my view, to invoke not only his authority as governor, but the Constitution authorizing this behavior and that he is simply acting upon it. So that's really going to be an interesting interplay if those two views collide. We'll have to see. Talk to you. Hey, folks, thanks for sticking around. Appreciate that. Rick Wagner still here, trying to get it right here on KNZZ, KGLN. Harder and harder to get it right because there's so much wrong out there. It's easy to be right. It's just hard to get the word out about it. So, like I said in the last segments, this whole thing from Texas and this tension between the Texas governor and, well, the state of Texas, and which used to be the Republic of Texas, let's not forget, and the Biden administration is going to turn out to be, I think, very interesting if things escalate with the National Guard or if they try and send, I don't know why you would have to actually send the National Guard in. That was one of the Joaquin Castro, you know, one of the congressmen who, well, the last name tells you pretty much everything you need to know. Actually, I know some people who have the last name, and they're not uh, liberal, but this guy is, well, there's liberal plus plus, you know, sort of like uh, plus plus ammu- plus plus ammunition. Anyway, uh, you already have all these Border Patrolmen down there. Just order them to get in there and, you know, have a tussle with the Department of Public Safety. And the, the reason they don't is the same reason they're not going to do it this way, most likely, anyway, is that, as I said, these are all Texans, at least in the National Guard, and in the Department of Public Safety, and the Border Patrol people, to the extent that they aren't Texans, pretty much agree with it. So what's going to happen? It's really fascinating. We haven't seen anything like this in a long time. We're going to have to monitor it. And it does bring up certain constitutional questions, not that that matters anymore, apparently. But uh, nevertheless, now some people... Talk about this, speaking of these problems, civil war porn, as they like to say. The left seems to be much more fascinated with this than people on the right. Uh, they see this big divide in the country, and then some of these places are going to, you know, secede, and we'll have, there's even a movie coming out, I think it has Kristen Dunst in it, called Civil War, and I've seen the trailer for it. It looks just as dumb as you would probably expect. But for some reason, the left, and maybe it's because there's a lot of neocons, kind of in the left, you know, the sort of left. They just keep thinking if, if there was some sort of war, I think that they would win somehow and, and settle the hash of everybody out there that disagrees with them. I'm a little, little concerned that might be what they're thinking. I haven't heard that, but it sounds kind of the way they lean on this stuff. But a little more levity and truth is something that showed up in my inbox this week. I got my copy of the uh, American Spectator, and they had a very interesting column in there and the woman's name is uh i think bridget phelps i think is what it is i'm looking for it here now but it was called uh america is too fat for another civil war 
And it has, while it's tongue-in-cheek in the sense that it's funny, it's all pretty true. They point out that uh, in a recent Pentagon study, 77% of young Americans do not qualify for military service due to being, according to her, drug-addled, fat, crazy, or some combination of the above. And another study from late last year showed that 20% of active-duty military are too fat for active duty. Well, that's interesting. It used to be you'd get in trouble for that, but since they can't meet their recruiting requirements, my feeling is they're not going to give you the boot or threaten to anyway if you don't lose weight. She brought up that... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, this makes you laugh every time. She said, you're you're not going to get very far if your mounted division is riding on rascal mobility scooters. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's, it's funny. She also talks about visiting some Civil War battlefields. And she said that uh, if you go to, like, oh, the Ozarks, and I'm trying to remember which battle they were marching to here. I know in Franklin, Tennessee, she's saying that uh, one of the battles there that they had, this is the Union, had, in fact, marched all night, and that had to run uphill two miles with all their gear to make the final approach. And there was a four-day uh, March, 120 miles with Ozark Mountains in December of 1862, she points out, and the average soldier was able to walk 30 miles carrying a 40-pound pack. What do you think of that? I don't even like anything about that at all. So, it's, like I say, tongue-in-cheek, but it's not a very, let's so we say, encouraging thing about our military. We already see some of the, the standards that what used to be meritocracy have just pretty much disappeared in hiring. Some of you have pointed out, I think we talked about it, but I had on my website that the FAA, Federal uh, Aviation Administration, was looking for people with uh, emotional and psychiatric disabilities and physical ones as well as part of their diversity hiring, which sounds to me a, a, a little unwise. And so what she was trying to say here is that by taking off on this sort of civil war porn and essentially saying nobody's going to be able to fight it, which is, I think, not true, but it is a tongue-in-cheek thing, right? Um, she says, no matter what happens, uh, war is kinetic. Everyone can't provide covering fire. Someone has to be maneuvering. And eventually, you're going to have to move. If you don't require a forklift to get out of your home it's highly unlikely to be able to walk miles on end to meet up with the boys for the next fight. Very true. I'm very curious what's going to happen if we have to have any kind of serious engagement with the state of the military after where this leadership has just undermined it. Uh, we have great people in the military, but they need support, and they need to be able to count on everybody else that's in the military. You know, people, when you're... In the military, and this has been true since, I don't know, 4000 BC. Soldiers bond and look to each other for protection. And eventually, they're not only fighting for their country or their nation or their empire or whatever, but they're fighting for the guy next to them because they believe that person is there for them and they're going to be there for that person. And it's that bonding experience. And when you have people that are, may be incapable in a unit of really providing that, even if their heart's in the right place, 
what's that do to the unit cohesion? To say nothing about some of the programs that we have going on in here that seem to have nothing to do with combat effectiveness or readiness. Nobody presently in the military structure, at least the civilian side especially, wants to say that the purpose of the military is to kill people and break things until the other side doesn't want to do it anymore. It's not a complex mission. But boy, they sure are making it one. She has a, uh, in this article I was reading, she has a very funny letter that she imagines that someone would be writing. She uses this for some of the uh, younger draftees, I'm sure. She says, this would be, imagine the letters home. She says, Dearest Mother, we have lost the battle for <laughs> for uh, Costco. In fact, we never made it. Some of the guys' moms couldn't drop them off. They said the gas prices were too high. For those of us who did make it, we got lost immediately. Someone mentioned navigating land using a map and a compass. How could we use those without the Internet? They said, after a grueling 10-minute march in full gear with only our hot pockets to sustain us, we collapsed, too exhausted to continue. Who knew that my Call of Duty skills would not translate to the actual battlefield? I hesitate to say that that's pretty funny, but there's some truth to that. Anyway, that's where we're at with uh, modern government that we have now. And it can be fixed. And what disturbs me is there are a lot of people in the military now that deserve so much better than this. They deserve better leadership. They deserve to have better trained compatriots. They deserve to have that cohesion that makes them not only effective, but protects them in many ways. And boy, it just doesn't feel like they're getting it. Speaking of not getting it, getting it, I put something up on the website that everybody seemed to like. Well, I was encouraging it to. Uh, and it's just what you're looking for. It's what I've looked for a few times. So if you want to go here and, and uh, print off some of this stuff, feel free. It's at our website, uh, therickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com. One word, political viking. And the title is wrong again. 50 years of failed echo apocalyptic predictions. And you know how you're always trying to remember that, oh, didn't, wasn't there something several years ago about uh, global cooling and this and that? And you just can't quite remember. What they've done in this article is they have went back through to all the way to, I think, 67, yeah, and culled through all of these apocalyptic predictions from the sciences, uh, many about climate, and kind of put them in one place. So not only is what they say there, but it's actually the actual clippings. So it's great to have on hand to show somebody, you know, when they're talking about how oh, there's a consensus. Yeah, well, there's been a lot of consensus. The first one, it reminded me of someone, it rather brought to mind someone we know if we ever saw one of the old books, The Population Bomb, by Paul uh, Ehrlich, he said that time of famine, this is in 1967, is upon us. And it will be its worst and most disastrous by 1975. He said the population of the United States is already too big. Birth control may have to be accomplished by making it involuntary and by putting sterilizing agents into staple foods and drinking water. Okay, this is a Los Angeles Times writer that wrote this about Paul Ehrlich's comments. This is in 1967. Now, in 1969, he was able to say, same guy, this was writing in uh, the New York Times, August 10, 1969. He said, the trouble with almost all environmental problems, says Paul Ehrlich, the population biologist, 
is that by the time we have enough evidence to convince people, you're dead. We must realize that unless we are extremely lucky, everybody will disappear in a cloud of blue steam in 20 years. So let's see. That was uh, 1969, Oh, gee. That would have been 1989. I didn't see anything like that. would have been in the papers or something, don't you think? Boston Globe, 1970. Scientists predicts a new ice age by 21st century. This was interesting how this was, this consensus was brought out was that air pollution would obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the next century, which by the way is us right now. The demands for cooling water would boil dry the entire flow of the rivers and streams of continental United States. Oh dear. Paul Ehrlich, of course, again, a couple, yeah, a little bit later. Uh, in 1970, he says that uh, the oceans will be as dead as Lake Erie in less than a decade. Okay. And here's one of them that I always was looking for this. And this is uh, 1971. We started seeing this stuff. This is the Washington Post about the new ice age. Uh, they said that uh, this doctor, uh, S.I. Rascal of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and Columbia University. Well, my gosh. I mean, it's going to happen, I guess. In the next 50 years, the fine dust constantly puts into the atmosphere, and that's the syntax they came up with, fuel burning could screen out so much sunlight that the average temperature could drop by 6 degrees. If sustained over several years, he estimated such a temperature disease would be sufficient to trigger an ice age. Okay, yeah. In 1974, The Guardian, which is out of uh, Great Britain, Pointed out that space satellites show new ice age coming fast. All right. Time magazine, also in 1974. Telltale signs are everywhere. From the unexpected persistence and thickness of pack ice in the waters around Iceland, and this is my one of my favorites, to the southward migration of warmth-loving creatures like the armadillo from the Midwest. <laughs> okay, there's something I got another one. The cooling, it's called, in New York Times, 1976. He says, In 1974, Schneider and Bryson tried to explain to a White House policymaking group why conditions are likely to get worse. Right, this is global cooling. One of the most depressing anecdotes is his description of the deaf ear their warnings bring in. Then we hop to 76, we start talking about acid rain. Okay, that's an environmental crisis. Pretty serious, obviously. Let's see. Let's see, more droughts likely. And then in 1988, we start long, hot summers. Yes. Uh, for instance, the summers would go from a current 35 days a year to, of over 90 degrees to 85 days a year of 90 degrees. Hasn't happened. Also, they decided that this is also a global cooling thing where uh, no this is global warming i'm sorry can't keep it straight this was this was this was in 1988 where we started making the shift from ice age to uh planet of water they said that some of the islands in the maldives maldives rather uh is threatening to be completely covered uh, over the next 30 years because of this that, that's we're in that 30 years too and i haven't seen it uh, rising seas could obliterate nations, UN officials. <laughs> I have to say, and there's just more and more of these. If you're, if you're interested, you should save this and just pull it out because there's all of these predictions in there. And then of course we get Al Gore, right? 
December 14, 2008. Former presidential candidate Al Gore predicted the North Polar Ice Cape would be completely free, ice-free, in five years. That was in 2013. I saw some pictures, and I couldn't see the ground up there. Uh, there's not much ground up there. It's not like Antarctica. But there's there's all sorts of stuff on here. And the more you read it, the more dizzying it becomes. And like I said, it's nice to have because what it's doing is it's allowing you to show people the actual articles. And they're serious articles. These people are serious about what they're saying. It's amazing how many of them show up in the same publications. New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian, Time Magazine. And these guys will publish these very serious articles about global cooling. And then five years later, it's global warming. We also have some on there about, and this is the blast from the past for some of you, the ozone hole. Yeah. That was going to fry people like ants under a magnifying glass uh, in a few years. That seemed to not happen. And then, you know, the acid rain thing kind of came and went. Uh, so when you see all this stuff together, you realize what a mess the country and the world would be if we took these nincompoops seriously. If we allowed these consensus, and by the way, some of these things are the consensus of the time, according to them, and we should have acted on them, correct? If you believe people now, what would it be like if we would put in some, into place some of these crackpot ideas they had in the 70s and 80s and 90s and 2000s and 2020s? But, you know, it's a crackpot idea every couple of years. If we would done these things in the past. Let's let's take the most crazy one, Paul Ehrlich in 1967, who's predicting that we should put the birth control into the water supply because there were too many people. Now, what kind of person suggests that? And it would be involuntary, he even said. Well, a crazy dictator, that's the kind of person that does that. And if you scratch the surface on a lot of these scientific consensus people, what you get are authoritarians who just happen to be wearing a lab coat and are desperate to be able to control things. Who knows why? It does seem to attract a certain group of them into the sciences once in a while. But that's what you're hearing. These are people who are craving not discovery, but political power. When you look at what's happening now, you see that everything is about political power. All of this climate change stuff. This this week, whoever is animating Joe Biden for the week uh, got them to shut down yet another natural gas processing facility. Why? There's not any really objective evidence that can't be countered very easily that natural gas is that kind of threat. Now, we all know that... Uh, Having a stove in your house that has natural gas apparently is very bad. And we keep seeing it pop up again and again. And certain jurisdictions or in states like New York keep trying to mess around with the idea of keeping natural gas stoves out of your house. They also want natural gas everything out of your house. Like I think they don't understand that not only is your stove natural gas, what about your hot water heater, your furnace? And we've talked about this many times. The cost, and let's assume 
you actually had the power grid to support this. And we don't. The cost to heat things by resistance electrical appliances would be ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine trying to use your hot water heater? Well, what you happens when you talk to these characters is that they don't care because they don't think it's going to affect them. They think that they need to straighten out the rubes out there so that they, you know, will feel good about themselves for saving the planet. And a high percentage of them want to straighten the rubes out there just because they'd like to boss people around. And what a great opportunity to do so. If you control energy, its generation, distribution, and how it's used in general, you control pretty much everything. This is like I said, for those of you that have read Amity Schlale's book on the forgotten man, the struggle between the federal government under FDR and the free enterprise people to stop the federal government from nationalizing the distribution of electrical power. People then realized that if the government was able to control power from a central location, in other words, the decision-making made in Washington, that would be a bad thing. Now, it seems like we are uh, we have too many people to think, well, an administrative state where a lot of people who are smarter than everybody, well, if you ask them, they're smarter than everybody, get together and make decisions for people that they have no idea how they live or even where they live is a good thing. It wasn't too far off in the 30s, same kind of people. These were the same people that went over and took a tour of Potemkin Village in Stalin's Russia and thought that communism was just a great thing, not even understanding or knowing that there were millions of people starving to death from collective farms that were put together by Stalin. Nevertheless, they thought, oh, communism isn't all that bad. I mean, you know, it's just almost as good as fascism. You know, look at what, uh, look what happened to Mussolini. He's really got things under control. People who look at centralized government and control almost always see themselves as either running it, affecting it, or not affected by it. That's a really very dangerous way to allow people to make policy of any sort, much less something like this. Anyway, go to the webpage if you want. You can get this stuff and print some of it out and show the actual articles from these times, which... I've looked for a few times, and this uh, location was really a cool way to find a bunch of them. You folks have a good weekend. What's left of it, we'll see you next week.